You are listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lasseter, three-time founder turned investor. Join us to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Join us to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Join us to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Welcome to Startups for Good. I'm your host, Miles Lasseter. On today's episode, I'm excited to welcome Mark Tarpinging, who is venture partner at Spiro Ventures, focused on companies that improve the health of the planet. He previously co-founded two successful companies, Nuvo Media in 1997 and, most famously, Tesla in 2003. Mark holds a BA in computer science from UC Berkeley. I got a real chuckle out of this when, when I got this bio from him because I noticed two things. One, I guess it's true that the more accomplished you become, the shorter your bio gets. And two, how very modest it, it is and how it really fits with his character as I've gotten to know him. Given his engineering background, we do geek out a little bit in this episode. We do discuss lots of good stuff. How to decide when to start a company, science risk versus technical risk versus relying on magic, tech trends that he's watching, innovating and regulated industries, and what he looks for as a VC in investments and a whole lot more. I think you'll really enjoy this. So please stay tuned. Mark, welcome to Startups for Good. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, it's great to be here. So first question for you. There's a famous saying in startup world that being too early is the same as being too late. True or not? Ooh. Well, I mean, both have their unique problems. You know, certainly our first startup, uh, Nuva Media, uh, was too early, arguably. We were just a little too early. We did electronic books right before, you know, that was a, a you know, technically viable thing. But that worked out in that we were able to find a firm that also saw the future in that. So I guess, you know, if you're too late, you end up as an also ran and perhaps that doesn't work as well. So I'm, I'm going to go with being a little too early, you know, can work, but the problem is you got to hang on long enough, you know, or find a company to, to become part of that's willing to wait. And how do you judge that market timing? Oh, there's no way to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just random. I mean, you know, like I, I you know, with, with Tesla, we ended up being, you know, sort of right on the, on the, you know, the timing, but Nuva Media, we thought we were too, you know, I mean, we had all the same things we were looking for. We were looking for things that were just technologically possible that the, the technology was going to enable sort of a new use case for something that people weren't anticipating. And that case was, was electronic books. And we thought that was going to be great, which it was, it just took longer than we thought, you know, we thought the same thing, you know, we did the same analysis and came to the same conclusion with electric cars. It's just that our time, you know, we, we got that one right. But I don't know we did anything different between the two. <laughs> it's just, you know, luck. You're saying that enabling tech for hard drives becoming denser and becoming lower price and screen technology were like enabling technologies for the ebook reader. So the ebook reader had had a couple of enabling things that were coming together. One was that solid state media. We didn't believe that hard disks. We came from the hard disk industry, and we actually didn't think that that was viable for a consumer electronics product like an electronic book for a whole variety of of funny reasons. We did look at it though, but uh, solid state storage was just becoming a thing that was possible at the time. But the big thing was display technology that we we had to scour the world. I mean, it sounds ridiculous now, but in 1997, when we started Nuva Media, we had to scour, you know, literally, you know, we went to Asia and looked at the, the very latest from the best Japanese and Korean manufacturers to find a display that you could read on. And, and in fact, the number one re thing that we, when we went to raise money, that the absolute number one thing was that um, the VCs would say, well, there's no, dis no one's going to read on the display because you can't read the characters. They're, they're too lame. Like that's just not going to work. And it was only when we had a, a sample actually from, um, God, I can't remember which the manufacturer was, but one of the giant Japanese uh, manufacturers. And we were able to, to show that, that people said, oh, I get it. It's going gonna, it's gonna to actually be work. The display technology has finally gotten good enough that you, one is, it's possible to read on a display. You know, CRTs ruled at the time in the 90s. So, 
Yes. And with Tesla, was the enabling technology primarily around the battery? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, electric cars have been around for over a hundred years, so they just hadn't been successful for a whole variety of, of, of marketing reasons, but also the energy density just wasn't high enough in, in batteries. You just couldn't get enough you just couldn't get enough range. And we had seen because of our, our work with, with electronic books and consumer electronics that, you know, like when we started for our ebook, we used nickel metal hydride batteries, which were the best at the time. And, you know, they were pretty good, but they were a little heavy and the battery life, we needed it to last for an intercontinental flight. And that was really pushing it at the time. And then our next rev of that product, the lithium ion batteries had come out and they were lighter and had more energy and it made our energy, you know, made it everything easier for the next rev of the product. And that had been ticking away, you know, for years and years when we started, you know, Tesla. And we looked at that lithium ion battery energy density and cost curve and realized that this was what was going to make electric cars uh, compelling. Are there any technology trends that you're seeing now that you think founders should be watching it would, it would be similar <laughs> yeah well you know i don't so so battery costs are still going down and those are unlocking new potential markets i had thought actually that we would have an alternative to lithium ion cells for grid level storage by now which may never happen because it, so, so there's a, a funny thing. Lithium-ion batteries are really optimized for uh, weight, you know, weight and 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 sort of volume. They're they're very dense that way, uh, energy-wise, which is which is awesome for handheld devices and mobile devices and and cars and stuff. But you know, if you think about grid-level storage, what you really you don't care about how much they weigh or how big they are. Really, what you what you care about is uh, some of the storage, the, the longevity of how, of how long you can hold a charge and, and, and how many cycles you can have. And the, and the big thing is cost. So I always assumed that there would be some different battery technology that wasn't optimized around volume and weight, but was optimized around these other things that would make more sense for, for grid level. And there's been tons and tons of startups pushing on that, but they always end up not being successful because by the time they get their, whatever it is out, lithium ion cells have become cheaper and better. And it's just easier to use them uh, than, than using some newfangled thing, which, which is more expensive. So it's it's been really interesting. So that was one that I thought was going to happen really soon, you know, and 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 didn't happen. Uh, for and pumped uh, pumped uh, hydro is still the best. Best, well, sort of. I mean, pumped I mean, hydro cheapest is for uh, for yeah, it, it's for it's the gold standard, if you will. Um, but it only is seventy percent. Uh, efficient in the sense that you lose 30% of the energy. You know, this is this is this technology where you just pump water up a hill and then use the water, you know, use it to generate power when you need it coming down the hill. And you do lose 30% of the energy doing that. So anything in energy storage kind of has to compete with that. The the big problem with with pumped hydro is simply that you need uh, geologic features to allow that. And in California, there's probably never going to be another pumped hydro uh, facility built just because there's an environmental cost. You have to flood some valley. You have to build a dam. You know, you have to, to, uh, you know, to, to be in a place where the geology works, where you have that differential in, in the height. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, that really is limiting. Uh, it, it's the gold standard in terms of, you know, the cheapest, you know, per kilowatt hour, but, you know, it has these limitations and it also isn't applicable in small, you know, you, you couldn't put it in your substation in your local community uh, like you can with uh, batteries. Right. So you've been watching grid level storage, any other trends you're watching? So there's some big needs. There's a lot of interesting work going on in desalinization uh, and sort of, you know, water recovery, whether it's going, you know, all the way from desalt or whether it's, you know, cleaning up, you know, various wastewater. So a lot of interesting stuff going on in membranes, which uh, are, are changing some of that energy equation. I mean, desalt water is very expensive, but, but maybe, it won't be uh, because of new membrane technology. And that membrane technology can be used in other things as well, you know, in, in chemical processes and stuff that also are energy intensive. So membranes are exciting. And then there's, you know, I've been looking a lot at agriculture 
there's a lot of, of exciting things going on in terms of both all the way from genetic engineering side, let's say, you know, using CRISPR and stuff to, to re-domesticate crops or to create new domesticated crops. And then maybe on the other extreme, if you will, would be things like uh, regenerative agriculture. You know, and, and that's, you know, doing farming techniques to, to, to really store a lot of carbon in the soil and rebuild the topsoil that we're depleting. And then in that spectrum, you also have, you know, things like vertical farms that are really great on water usage and robotic farming, which, you know, we have an investment in at Sparrow. And there's a lot of excitement there. And that's even, so going back to, let's just say robotic farming, that, that's the merging of computer vision, sort of machine learning and, and robotics to do something that was really hard, uh, only it's still hard, but it was super hard 10 years ago. You couldn't do it. Those are a lot of exciting things you've mentioned there. Uh, with Tesla, you lived through the first, call it clean tech boom and bust. And now you're a VC in the climate tech boom call it. I'm curious, any learnings from the first time around that are being applied the second one or things people should have learned? Well, you know, we were, it was an interesting thing because when we were raising money for Tesla, we didn't benefit from the clean tech boom that, that happened later. So we, we had already, you know, our funding was happening. We had raised a bunch of rounds and then suddenly clean tech became hot and we had some participation perhaps that we that we might not have had, but we were pretty far along by the time that was that was becoming a hot thing. People would, uh, I should say, people, you know, VCs would invest in stuff that didn't. They never did the math. Let's say on on whether it made sense or not, uh, and that that was something that we learned in some ways, I guess, from the dot com bust. But but there was a little bit of a boomlet as well in like hydrogen fuel cells and stuff, which, you know, people just never did the math uh, on that. And when they did the math, actually, I should say some, some really did the math and some didn't. Uh, and when we were raising money for Tesla, so before the clean tech, you know, boom and bust, some people would ask about, for example, hydrogen fuel cells. And we would say, you know, we're not using them for these reasons. And we had a whole deck on that and other you know, VCs would say, oh, oh, you can just skip that. We, we did the math, you know, like literally that was a comment. We, oh, we did the math. We know it doesn't make any sense. So you don't have to talk about that. Uh, so I guess my, my takeaway from that and, and watching what happened in this last one was you've got to make sure that, that the business pencils out, you know, like are the energy savings really going to pay for that? Or is the, you know, you know, whatever the, the metric is, um, just because it's sort of, you know, hot and sexy doesn't, doesn't make the unit economics positive. Um, and ultimately that's gotta be the, it, it, it has to pencil out. So when you're early in a business and there's still very high technical risk, how, how do you know what the unit economics are going to be? Obviously you can take today's prices, but often you're hoping to sell something in the future with different market prices. And I'm curious how you think about that. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, so, you know, if things that get physically made, you know, like cars or, or production stuff, almost always they start off with negative unit economics because, and, and that's sort of built into the supply agreements and everything, you know, you, you, when you go buy parts, you know, the first, you know, 5,000 are at one price and the next, you know, 10,000 are at a different price. So those first 5,000, you're going to have negative unit economics. I mean, the, the Prius was quite famously um, had negative unit economics for, I think the th first four years of its of its sales until Toyota, you know, worked its way down those supply curves because it was a new technology and they were, and of course they were a big company and they could afford that. So it doesn't, when it's relatively nascent, that's, it, it's okay. I mean, obviously it's more ideal if you are, you know, on the right side of that at the beginning, but as long as the company has a really clear glide path to, to profitability, um, you know, as a, as a venture capitalist or, you know, we're, we're fine with that. Um, but it has to be a really clear one. It can't depend on magic. You know, it's, it, it can't be, oh, and then we're going to invent some special thing that's going to really reduce these prices or, or these costs. It, you know, it, 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 there has to be an obvious way that that's going to happen. I think a bigger issue is anticipating what you can sell it for. 
And that can go either direction. Some things end up adding a lot more value than you expect. You can pivot to a different market that you didn't know about or, or, or weren't aware of where you're adding more value and you can, you can raise prices there. Uh, or of course, on the flip side, you can get hit by, for example, these lithium ion batteries that keep getting cheaper and better. So by the time you're actually out of the market, your battery, which made great sense five years ago is no longer competitive. So um, yeah, no, that's a real problem. That's uh, you know, that, that there's a lot of, of research that has to go into that. And ultimately it's still kind of a guess at the end. You heard it here first folks. You can't just rely on magic if you want to get a VC <laughs> to invest. Uh, but, you know, Arthur C. Clarke says that sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And that, I think, is the essence of high technical risk projects like the ones you've been involved in as a founder, that to other people, it probably seems like magic. Yeah, there is a big difference, though, between what we call science risk and technical risk that, you know, there are like there was no point. So, so, so Tesla never had any science risk that, um, you know, we could show the hard numbers as to how these batteries were evolving. And, and we actually made sure that we could make the, uh, you know, our car work with the cells that one could buy in 2003 when we started uh, Tesla, knowing that by the time we actually reached production, it was likely that those numbers would simply be better. You know, we'd have it would cost less and 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 have better performance than uh, than where we started. But we we made sure that that they could it could at least be a compelling product with with the existing batteries that we started with. There was and in electric cars you know, had been around, you know, the, the AC induction motor, which was what we chose, you know, it was invented by Nikola Tesla, you know, a hundred years before. So we had to, you know, make special versions of that. And we had to, to do a ton of engineering around that, but those are, you know, engineering and execution risks, not science risks, um, where you get into danger in term. And there are VCs that, that specifically invest in science risks, but where a lot of them won't, including my work at Sparrow, we typically don't invest in things that we don't know that the universe permits. So, you know, when, when you're dealing with science <laughs> risk, I mean, seriously, it's, it's, you know, well, this looks like an interesting experiment, but, but, you know, is, is this, do the laws of the universe even permit this? Uh, we want to make really sure that, that there's no fundamental science risk that, that, that we know it's just an execution and technology risk. And, and we're, we're more comfortable with that because, you know, we're, we, you know, you can solve that. Right. And, and that was the kind of math you were referring to more with hydrogen fuel cells is sort of physics wise, the math is not totally the math, the math that, you know, it works poorly for a lot of applications because the, the, the losses are so incredibly high, you know, it'll take new physics or whatever to fix that. And, you know, that, that's not where you want to be betting, betting on. Fair enough. Now we've chatted about uh, fusion in the past and w which category do you put that in? Well, that fusion is super interesting because there's this sort of tokamak style, you know, potential fusion reactions, you know, which, which we know will work. I mean, there's no, no question about it, whether or not it'll ever be economic and, you know, whether you can have these giant laser things and, you know, whether that the economics of that will ever work out, I think is, is quite questionable. This new work coming out of MIT where you have, using these new warmer because of characteristics of these new superconducting magnets that's exciting because that has the potential of a fusion power in a much more compact scale you know like you know block size city block size scale not not city scale or you know whatever the the tokamaks are um, at a much lower cost point so if that pans out that could be super exciting the cold fusion stuff i would say is deep into science risk because you know there's we, nobody really knows whether that the universe really permits that right i i've been surprised at how slow the advances have been given how much time and money has gone in yet there's still lots of hope as you say um, particularly this new superconductors um, at MIT. I remember when I visited and they said they were working on fusion startups and my brain immediately went to some kind of food. 
like maybe it was Asian, <laughs> Asian fusion, fusion or something. And then I was like, oh no, you mean you mean like the sun? Okay, yeah, I'm back on it. Power generation. because uh, because I had thought uh, it was still a long way off, but you know, there are companies pursuing it. Not a lot, but there are some and some that look promising. And and it's because of a you know a, a discovery in an unrelated field. So this is this goes back to you know when you have you, you know like like I'm not sure that you know when Sony invented the lithium ion battery I you know I know for a fact they're they they were not thinking oh this will enable electric cars you know that will that will completely decarbonize you know personal transportation like that's not where their head went and. Uh, they were like, wow, the Walkman can, can, you know, we can make Walkmans that, that, that run cassettes longer. And these, these semiconductors, these uh, superconductors for these magnets, I'm sure that, you know, maybe they immediately thought of the, the fusion uh, application, but um, I'm not sure that was really where they were going. It was probably medical instrumentation, some other, you know, interesting lab equipment. And, you know, this group out of MIT said, Hey, you know, this, these have the characteristics to make a much more interesting, you know, fusion reaction, which, you know, it's, I, I love that kind of, of one technology enabling something really different in another, another area. Are there any non-obvious connections between your ebook startup and Tesla in that way? I mean, I, I can see a through line around understanding batteries. Was there anything else that you took forward from a technology set? Um, not so much from a technology side. I mean, you know, obviously batteries was the, was the main one and, you know, just expertise in terms of, you know, we had some idea of how to manufacture stuff and, and how that all worked from that experience. There was an interesting takeaway. So the book industry, which was where we were playing in the nineties is really, really old. I mean, it predates the United States. Uh, Some of the laws predate that they actually are, it's actually governed under a set of of interesting laws that are part of like British common law that because they predated the creation of the US are sort of grandfathered into our legal system. Uh, So you have to have special lawyers to deal with them. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not, but not a lot. I mean, they're, they're really, uh, it's an interesting industry and it has enormously old companies and, and players and, they those companies have not adapted well, at least certainly hadn't in the in the 90s. By the 90s, adapted well to uh, innovation, technologies changing, and they were worried about it. In some ways, the car industry was very similar, and we had we had discussions in the car industry which which were very reminiscent of of, of working with uh, the publishing houses in New York in the sense of. You know, like they didn't see any reason to change, or there was, there was, you know, we've been doing this for a hundred years, and like, why would, why would anything um, happen differently? Uh, so, it, I actually, again, this is something else I like are, are these really old entrenched industries because they don't tend to move very quickly, and I think it provides some space for, you know, fast-moving startups to, 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 uh, to get the best of them before they can wake up and, and realize they need to do something. And yet the car industry's response to just-in-time manufacturing and creating these outsourced supply chains was perhaps an enabling process or market uh, situation that and that allowed you to get a new car company started, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. When they when the, the car companies refactored themselves and uh, in, in a way that made sense in that they were only focused on the things that they cared about. And for the car industry, that's largely, you know, the, the marketing, they don't do the sales directly because they have franchises typically, but, but they did the marketing and then they would do the development of, um, of the internal combustion engine, uh, which was, was there, which are incredibly complicated mechanical devices, which they make really, really well. Uh, and they do a little, and they've out, even outsourced some of the styling and stuff, although they'd like to keep a lot of that in-house, that they kept that, but everything else they outsourced. So, you know, the, the brake manufacturers and the windshield makers and the, you know, the windshield wiper blade makers and, you know, all those. And the great thing about if you're starting a car company is that you can potentially have access to those supply chains. Now, you're not going to get the same pricing, obviously, that, you know, that Honda gets, you know, on a, on a wiper blade but at least you could potentially get it. It turns out that it's much harder to break into the supply chains than we thought, but, but we were eventually able to do that. But yeah, so that, that refactoring enabled it. It also set them up in that 
when we looked at what the car companies had, they kept you know the marketing, they kept the internal combustion engine, and they kept the final assembly of the vehicle. And you know we didn't want any of that from them, you know, because we were the thing that makes the car go was what they kept, and that was not applicable to, in an electric you know electric cars. We you know Tesla developed the technology to make the car go ourselves because we couldn't get that from the car industry. They, they were not doing that. So it was, it was an interesting thing. It worked well for a while. The car industry doesn't have electrical engineers in the same way that the Silicon Valley thinks of them. And they, they've even outsourced all the, you know, the, the ECUs, which are the little computers that make the, the internal combustion engines, you know, that, that make the spark plugs go and it, it, they control the engine. All of that's outsourced as well. So they, they don't really do any electronics and it's, Put them at a huge disadvantage because I think modern cars are are becoming ever more, you know, computers on wheels. Right. Don't just listen, get engaged. You've heard me talking about the Startups for Good Giving Circle, and maybe you're wondering how does it work? Go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. You'll be able to sign up as a member and choose to make a reoccurring donation, let's say $20 a month or whatever you can afford. We will focus on newer or startup tech nonprofits to provide the initial angel funding to get them off the ground. We will vote on a nonprofit recipient of our grant approximately quarterly. All donations are US tax deductible. So go to startupsforgood.com and click on Giving Circle. Now, when you originally started Tesla, you said you took a few months to get convinced. And I'm really curious about your perspective on starting a company before you're convinced of it and the journey that a founder goes on to really believe in the concept. You know, Martin and I started Tesla, you know, and, and it was Martin really who who had this. He said, you know, I think electric cars, you know, are are going to be the way, you know, this is this is what we're going to do. And we looked at some other stuff too, but no, nothing was nearly as big of a market or, or as interesting or, or as impactful as, as electric cars. We had to convince ourselves of a couple things. I mean, one was just, you know, was it possible? Like, could you actually make an electric car? Could you make the car part? Very, you know, quickly we knew we could do the electric part. I mean, that's Silicon Valley, right? And it, it takes, you know, some computers and it takes some power electronics and, you know, it takes some batteries and we knew a lot about batteries. And so, so that part, and it takes a bunch of computers all put together in a network that's got some isolation and stuff. Those are things that Silicon Valley does really well. And so we knew that that part was, you know, was doable. And once, once we'd run the numbers, we had these spreadsheets that kind of tried to figure out what kind of car we could build and stuff. But then the big question was, you know, could we build the the car part. And that's where we really dove deep and, and went to understand like how cars get built and who the suppliers were and, and what kind of things get outsourced. And, and that's where we really learned that it was possible. One, once we understood how, you know, how modern cars get, how the modern car industry, you know, works, basically, we, we realized that we could do this. And there, there are companies that do even the final assembly, you know, Magnus Steyr in Austria is a contract manufacturer for cars, and they make things like BMWs and Saabs and you know uh, Chevrolets and stuff in Europe. But they actually do all the assembly. They actually make the car happen. They're contract manufacturers for those car companies, and you'd never know about them because you only see the the BMW, you know. But it's but it's actually made by Magnus Steyr. So we you know once we really understood that, we realized okay, even screwing the car together, we're going to be able if we need to to outsource that. So there was a series of practical questions you had for yourself. That makes sense for me. Oh right, yeah. And then we had to we had to financial we had to do the financial modeling to see if you know if if we did this and the car was ruined. I mean, like really really expensive because of our lack of of volume. Then you know obviously that wasn't going to be a viable business. When I did my first startup, I remember this feeling very distinctly of thinking I was committed, and then. A month later, I would realize, no, 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 now I'm really committed. Like I'm willing to go to more people and do more things. And I'm more convinced and more excited. And I do think it's more of an iterative process than uh, the popular media or the popular conception of that founder journey. Would you agree? Oh, I, I, I totally agree. You know, we, we spent months, you know, figuring out whether this was really, as I said, really doable, but then also 
iterating on what kind of product we could make. You know, there's a lot of technical and, and sort of business aspects to to the products that we chose, and you know what the capabilities could be. And you know, each time, you know, there'd be these moments. And then, of course, you know, we were also floating it by people that we knew, and they would say this is insane or whatever. So you get kind of discouraged, which is one of the reasons, actually, I think it's useful to have co-founders because you know there's obviously you know there's been some famous co-founding you know uh, breakups you know historically but this ability to have a couple of people thinking about the problem and being you know sort of manic depressive out of phase from you you know when you when you get that like 12th rejection and you're just like so bummed and then and your co-founder you know, instead just discovered some new, you know, power transistor and is super psyched because it's going to, you know, change what we can make. It's good to be a little bit out of phase so that, 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 um, you know, it sort of iterates and you get sort of more committed over time. I, I totally believe in this value of having co-founders for that exact reason that you're on different cycles on the roller coaster. And I think that's also very counterintuitive to people because you think you'd be reacting to the same information, but your emotional state is much more complex than, you know, having the same evaluation of where the business is. And to your point, like these micro things of what was the last meeting and what was the last thing I figured out can really impact your emotional state. And when you can support each other really helps. It makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I, I, that, that's, a, that's extremely well said. So while you were on that roller coaster, I think it'd be really valuable for other founders to have a sense. You know, how many times did you think, oh, this just isn't going to work out. I'm going to fail. Given how successful people see Tesla today, I'm curious if you can think back and how many times were you really on the low end of that roller coaster ride? Well, I mean, you know, the, the roller coaster, of course, happens, you know, at many different points. At the beginning of time, I think it's the, in, it's different. So, you know, before you raise a bunch of money and are sort of off to the races, you know, you get a lot of rejections. And that's just the nature of raising money. And if you think about, you know, now I'm on sort of the other side of the table, you know, we see, I don't know how many, you know, 100 companies a, a month, you know, collectively among the partners, and we may, might write one check a month. You know, and so, so you know, it, it, and, and all firms are, you know, like that ratio. So, you know, almost always as an entrepreneur, you're going to be told no most of the time, but that's okay. You know, and it, you just need to get a couple that, that want to come along on your journey. There is that sort of, of questioning, you know, you know, is this really going to, nobody wants us, you know, is this really going to work? We fortunately did not spend a huge amount of time raising money. We got relatively lucky early on with a couple of, uh, of early investors that were supportive and then running into Elon actually in, uh, in 2004, we, we started raising money in, uh, in January, right after the holidays in 2004. And by April, we had our, our round, first round closed, which you know, was was pretty pretty good for for such a radical company, uh, and and Elon ended up. You know, he was a super angel, and he came in as the lead investor, and that catalyzed the rest of the round. He was not very well known at the time, uh, but we had we had. I, we, I remember him though because I was doing a fintech startup, which wasn't even a word back in two thousand, um, and X dot com was very much on our radar because we were essentially starting an online bank. So oh, I, yes, I, I, bet, I, I bet you were much more entangled with him. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I won't share everything, but yeah, we were much more uh, watchful of, of his activities. Yeah. And then, you know, after, after you get that funding, you know, then obviously you have to make sure that you're hitting the milestones to get the, the next funding rounds and stuff, you know, secured. And you're always, you, as a founder, like we always felt like all we were doing is, you know, raising money all the time, really. Because, you know, once one round was closed, you had about a week to, to you know, really focus on the, on the work. And then you'd have to begin thinking about, okay, well, you know, in six months, you know, we'll have this milestone achieved and we're going to have to raise some more money. And, you know, who do we really you know, want to be going after and, you know, what metrics do we have to, to really hit to make sure we can, we can raise the money. Um, so, I mean, there's always that, that treadmill along the way, there were both some, you know, near death experiences in terms of, of just, you know, vendor failures and stuff that would screw up our schedules and cause cost overruns. And, you know, those things, the sort of execution, if you will, some of those can be really bad. We had at Nuva Media, we had a, um, 
we had a funding round on the night of closing, you know, the signatures are coming in and, and we had our lead investor uh, essentially get, get bribed to not invest. And, and they ended up, you know, that was a terrible deal for them, but they, they got seduced. <laughs> and that really, that, that was a near-death experience for, for Nova Media, except we had a, fortunately, a very supportive other investor who, who stepped up and, and floated us while we put the round back together again. But, you know, so you have these sort of near-death experiences. That sounds very frustrating. Now, was the mission baked in from the beginning at Tesla? Yeah, actually, so when our, not that we had a mission, but when, when we started Nuvo Media, that was, you know, we, we wanted to, we felt it was a really interesting product. We felt we had, you know, we could really connect with some customers. And I will be, you know, perfectly honest, we thought it would be really fun. We both, Martin and I both read a lot. It would be really fun to understand the publishing industry better and hopefully meet a bunch of cool authors and, you know, go to New York City. And those, those were all goals, you know, that were not exactly deep mission goals, but they were definitely, you know, part of the, the equation. And we did all those things. We met some fascinating authors and, you know, hung out in New York and it was all great. Uh, and the publishing industry, as I said, is both ancient, but also, you know, it's, it's you know, it is the, the, the literally uh, the market of ideas. And it's, it's, it's quite exciting that way for, when we did Tesla, we, we deliberately thought about a company that had a bigger mission than that, which, you know, and, and it worked to our advantage, you know, for sure, not only personally motivating and motivating for our investors and our employees. I mean, it, it allowed us to have employees that we couldn't possibly have afforded without a mission. So I'm a big believer in, in having, you know, a, a mission that people can really believe in and, and want to be part of. Yeah, I mean, that's what uh, this whole podcast series is about. So again, uh, thank you for coming on. Now, if I recall correctly, you, you were the CFO and head of engineering at the beginning. Was that, yes. was that intentional? How long did that last? Benefits, uh, downsides? Yeah. Way too long. It lasted way too long. So, and I was also at this, that had the same role at, uh, at Nuvo Media. So at the beginning of time, when you start a company, you know, there's only, you have, you know, when you file the paperwork, there has to be, you know, sort of a CEO and a CFO. Now they can be the same person, you know, but you have to, you have to say kind of who's, who's in charge of the company and who's in charge of the money. You have to sort of designate that. And my temperament leads, you know, for whatever reason, you know, I like spreadsheets. I like to, you know, fiddle with them. Uh, so I'm fairly good at, the accounting side. It's, it's an engineering trait, I guess. And Martin, you know, is, 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 you know, much better. I mean, he's super technical, but, and, you know, brilliant technically, but, you know, he also, uh, you know, was the CEO. So, and we had to, to do these two roles and, and it turns out that, that that was a good, you know, shift. Now in both cases, you know, like for the CFO thing, you know, of course there's no CFOing really to do at the beginning other than just make the legal documents happen. So I immediately hire, you know, a bookkeeper and then, you know, an accountant and then, you know, and I'm desperately trying to replace myself uh, out of that because it's not something that I want to spend time doing. It's not where I can add the most value. And I'm much more an engineering type person. And at Tesla, we ended up in this funny trick bag where we had a super strong controller and she was, you know, kind of really the CFO in a sense, but we were looking for a, a CFO and it took much longer than expected. Uh, so I was so desperate to get out of that role. And, you know, we, we just were struggling to get, to get somebody, it was a super hot time in Silicon Valley. And, you know, we had this sort of strange startup with, you know, electric cars and it was a, a difficult time to find somebody. And it just about killed me. I was, <laughs> I was so fried because you know, I, I couldn't do either job very well, of course, because, you know, I, I was certainly not going to be a very good CFO and, uh, and my engineering job was completely impaired because I was spending so much time, you know, flailing about being a CFO. And I couldn't have done it except we had this super strong controller that, that, that actually did all the heavy lifting. I was curious, and I hadn't had a chance to ask before about that. Because when you look at the history of SpaceX, you know, I think Elon Musk makes a lot of, you know, making engineering and financial trade-offs in the same brain. And I was wondering if that was an advantage for you, but it sounds like you didn't feel that. 
No, I mean, we were always making those kinds of, of trade-offs, but, you know, you don't have to be a CFO to do that. You know, like, you know CFO typically also Fair deals enough. with, you, you know. You don't have to talk to the auditors. That's exactly you, right. You want to do that, yeah. yeah that's, that is exactly right. And, uh, you know, the auditors and the uh, and HR frequently, you know, kind of flows in there. Now, that was one thing that we learned from Nuva Media was that I was, there was no way I was handling anything with HR uh, in uh, in the new company. So one of the very, very first hires, you know, like employee number, you know, five or whatever was a, an office manager who was just completely awesome. And she handled all the HR stuff. It's very important to get right. And too many people put it off. I think speaking of that, the people side of things and Tesla being a company with, you know, safety and people being really impacted by the use of the product. I, I'm also, you know, thinking about how Silicon Valley has been talking about software eating the world and starting to go into more and more regulated industries, going into healthcare, other places where safety is so important. I'm curious if there's any way that you approached safety and regulation while still trying to iterate and keep that Silicon Valley ethos of moving quickly um, that was successful. Any any lessons there for other founders? A little bit. I mean. So, you know, we had two levels, we, we have two different paths around safety in that, you know, we had, you know, obviously customer safety, the, the kind of safety that you, you know, imagine, you know, obviously, you know, making sure the car, you know, operates in a, in a way that's, you know, meets all the regulatory compliance, but also, you know, is, is obviously, you know, as safe as we can make it. Uh, and Tesla has always, you know, done that, I think, fairly well. But there's also something that very early on we understood was going to be complicated, and that is the safety of our employees in an environment where you're dealing with lethal voltages. So this is something that the car industry didn't have any experience with in terms of voltages, although the car industry had a lot of experience with lethal effects of fuel. <laughs> so you know, you can't smoke when you're working on a carburetor kind of thing, which, you know, was, was an early example of that. But we, you know, we had to put in a lot of, of safety things in the, in the R&D labs because of this, this you know, the, the potential danger of, of the batteries, uh, which was, you know, which was something that we really weren't thinking of at the very beginning. But then, you know, as soon as we began to build up anything, we realized, oh, shoot, we have to be super careful here. And, and you know, just being careful is not going to be good enough. We have to have processes in place and inspections, and we have to make sure, even though there's no regulatory aspect to it, at least probably there's somewhere in OSHA, there is something, but but it was a pretty nascent industry. So there wasn't a lot to, to go on. So we worked, you know, we worked through that. And then, you know, when you're dealing with a, a consumer product, you know, you have to, that, that, that has these safety implications, you know, you have to do, you know, sort of, uh, it's not quite military is the wrong version or wrong thing, but there's you know, these failure safety modes and analysis that you have to do uh, on, on essentially every component. So you just build those things into your process and you have these reviews and, you know, when, when people change something, you know, it all has to go through again and, and be reanalyzed. It's one of those things that once you're kind of used to it, it makes sense as a coder, there's a bunch of of good coding practices that are not exactly required for the automotive industry, but for systems that are in place that that affect safety. So not the stereo system, if you will, but let's say the the engine control unit in a in a internal combustion engine car. There are coding standards that exist through the various engineering societies, and we adopted those as you know. A, a, as quickly as we could, because they weren't always really there yet. <laughs> but as soon as they came out, we adopted those. So those were making sure you're following standards or sort of reasonable safety things for employees. But how do you think about that trade-off between innovation speed, trying something new, letting your employees experiment versus following the checklist, making sure regulations were followed? Well, that kind of thing. So the employees have to follow the safety protocols in order to do these tests and stuff. You know, what they're testing doesn't necessarily, I mean, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's where the innovation happens, but, you know, you have to make sure that they are safe in doing these things. And this, the overhead, one thing that's, that's really important to do in all of this is to make sure that you, 
you don't, as you say, you know, kill innovation. You don't want to, you don't want to make it so cumbersome to, to test anything, you know, or to, or to experiment that nobody does it. And I think that, that you just have to really think about the processes, you know, like where is the danger in, you know, in, in this particular case, and as we were developing these drivetrains, there's obviously some mechanical danger of, you know, you do have spinning motors on jigs and stuff, but, but the main danger is, is things around electricity and, you know, people have worked with electricity for a really long time now. So those are pretty well understood. You just have to make sure that, and they're not onerous. They, you know, it's a little bit like, you know, when you have a, a team that, that um, cuts down trees, you know, these people cut down trees all the time and they do it really efficiently. You know, the trimming trees, you watch the PG&E crews or, you know, the, the, that are trimming trees around here, but, you know, they do the safety check and it just takes a moment, you know, but before they, you know, monkey up on, on one of those trees and begin, you know, cutting the lines away from the, or the, the branches away from the power lines, you see the, 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 the one guy checking the other guy's harnesses and knots and everything to make sure that, that he's not going to fall. And it only takes a moment, but you have to do it every time. Right. Yeah. There's certain non-negotiables. That makes right. sense. Now you've made the transition from mission-driven founder to uh, other things in between and now mission-driven investor. And I'm curious, when you think about investing, is, is there a type of problem or is there an area where the market doesn't belong? Well, there are clearly market failures and, you know, whether or not, you know, I, I would argue, for example, that investor owned utilities are in many ways a market failure, um, given our experience with PG&E. You know, they were really good at increasing dividends every quarter for, you know, 22 straight years, but not so good at, at making sure we had reliable and safe power, you know, for example. So, you know, there are market failures like that. There's market failures in one of the things that we look at a lot are ways of making the built environment more efficient. But a lot of times the built environment is owned, the people who, who you know, the tenants that live in a building and the owner of the building, you know, they're rarely the same people. And in some ways, the owner of the building doesn't really have a financial interest in, re, in saving energy, for example, because that owner isn't paying for the energy, it's the tenants. And the tenants have no ability to you know, insulate the building or put in solar panels or you know, whatever else you wanna do because it's not their building. So those are kind of market failures, I think. And there's some innovative you know, financial products and stuff that potentially can, can, can work around that. But you know, I mean, I, I think that, that that's a market failure. And also obviously a market failure happens when, when the externalities aren't, aren't priced. I mean, carbon is the obvious example there that you know, we just spew the carbon you know, for free into the atmosphere as if it doesn't cost anything. And yet the, the cost to society of global warming is really, really huge. And if, if we were charged for that spewing of carbon into the atmosphere, we would have a very different product mix. Right. So you're in favor of a carbon tax or some kind of charge. Yeah, I think a carbon tax works really well. And, and the neat thing about a carbon tax is there's only a handful really of, of major sources of carbon. So it, it can be you know, relatively easily administered in a, in a lightweight way. I'm less a fan of various you know, regulations and stuff because the carbon tax, just it's, it's a very simple mechanism. But frankly, any way to, to capture that external cost and, and bring it bring it into people who are the ones, you know, putting that, uh, you know, uh, you know, causing that cost to happen to everybody else is, is good. And carbon tax just seems to be the lowest, the easiest way of doing it, but I'm, I'm open to anything really. And as a VC, what are you looking for? Like what kinds of risk are you wanting to take? So as I said, you know, we really typically don't do science risk. Um, everything else is on, on the table. I mean, you know, I, I believe in French, the, in a, a venture capitalist, the, the term for venture capitalism is, is capital risk <laughs> in French. And, and it's, it is, you know, it's, it's riskier stuff for sure. You know, we have a lot of, of you know, of, of failures. We try to, you know, minimize that, obviously. So what we look for you know, are obviously mission-driven founders because we, we believe that, that they have a higher success rate and, and they're working on something that's important. We, we love to see, you know, some network effects. 
it's great if your product is if the more people use the product, if the, the better that makes the product in some way, it doesn't have to be that way, but we certainly like that. We don't like risk that is what I would say product market fit risk. I mean, you hear this a lot, but we've seen a bunch of companies that have beautiful technology, but they haven't found a purpose for it yet. And that goes to this mission thing that it's a pretty weird mission to explore to I, I love this technology versus I want to solve this problem. So we're really looking for we, we don't like to take that risk of it's a solution looking for a problem and nobody can find the problem that it fits. You know, we really want to have people who really have experienced ideally firsthand some problem and now have a solution for it. Mm -hmm. Now you've said that you may not have yourself funded or invested in Tesla. And how do you make sure you find the next big company? It's a, it's a super good question. I mean, I think about our, you know, Martin and I did pretty well at, at, you know, building the decks and telling the story. I have now seen, you know, entrepreneurs that are better at that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, if I just think about, you know, if I was looking at all these different teams that would, you know, come through, I'm not sure that, that, that we would have risen quite to the top, uh, the, you know, which, which of course many people said no. So I guess, you know, we obviously didn't, you know, for them, what we got right. And, and what I, I think is, is important is that the market was very, very large and that it would have. And there was a mission behind it. It wasn't just the next shiny thing. And that, that that could drive a lot of growth, basically, both in the company, but also, you know, in the industry. And we could really be a leader. And we look for that kind of, not magic in the sense, but just, just that, that kind of potential in companies. And, and we still look for that. So I, I would hope that we might invest in, you know, in us if we came now. I know that our approach would be a little bit different because having seen now hundreds and hundreds of decks, uh, I would be, I'd be better at preparing that deck and telling the story. <laughs> Always look at to get better. Um, I love that you're, that you're still learning. I think that's also a common trait in successful founders. So big market, strong mission that you really believe in, not just technology looking for a solution. I think those are great criteria and charge to give to aspiring founders. And I think a good place to wrap up, where can people follow you online? Well, you can go to uh, Spero, uh, which is S-P-E-R-O.VC. That's uh, Spero Ventures. I'm also, you know, on Medium and LinkedIn, and I have a Twitter, you know, account as well, which I don't tweet very often, but, you know, all the sort of usual suspects in the social media world. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time today. Well, it's been great fun. All right. Take care. All right. If you liked what you heard today on the podcast, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. The reviews help others find us. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me on LinkedIn. Be sure to visit our website, startupsforgood.com. That's Startups for Good, all run together, no spaces, .com. If you were inspired today and want to join our online community or our giving circle, please do so on our website.